If you have your Bible today, turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. The power aid. For eight weeks we've been looking at the power aid. That's the Holy Spirit. We've been looking at who God the Holy Spirit is. We've been looking at the doctrine, the teaching about the Holy Spirit. And today I want to talk about supernatural power. And, I, and as I was thinking about this, uh, one night this week I, I had one of my usual 3 o'clock in the morning. I get up, I, I can't go back to sleep. I pray and I, and I get excited about what the Lord is going to teach me when I'm not sleeping usually. That's, and I prayed for a while and, and after I'd prayed and I still couldn't go to sleep, I thought, well, let's just see what HGTV has on. And instead of HGTV, they had some, uh, s- some program. And this is, what they were, this is what they were doing. It was like a home shopping network. But they called it Classic Faux Jewelry, inspired by Cartier and Tiffany's. Classic Faux Jewelry. You know what Faux is? It's French for fake. That's exactly what it is. It's classic, fake. How can it be classic if it's fake? I thought that was interesting. But I got to thinking about this. Fake, faux furs. You know what faux fur is? It's paying a lot of money for polyester. That's what it really is. All that fluffy stuff. Or faux wall texture. It's not real marble. It's paint. But you're going to pay through the nose for it. And then some designer will tell you a year from now, oh, you don't do that texture anymore. And they'll have you paint over it. Uh, our granddaughter, Ashley, we'd never been there for one of her birthdays uh, other than the day that she was born. Uh, we've not been able to be back. And so last year in, in Nashville, we had a faux birthday. It was a week late. It was a fake birthday. She didn't know we were coming, and we surprised her in Nashville. We were there for a conference, and we got to see her. When we're talking about the Holy Spirit, there are many today who claim a supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And my question to you is it faux? Is it fake? Is it the real thing? Uh, It looks amazing. Only your jeweler can know the difference is what they said about that classic faux jewelry. Only your jeweler will know the difference. And my question to you is sometimes when the Holy Spirit is moving and sometimes these others who claim the Holy Spirit's doing these miracles in their lives, is it the real thing? Only God can know, we say. It looks real. Is it the real thing? Let me ask you a question. Were we promised power in the New Testament? Was the Holy Spirit promised to do some amazing things for us? Absolutely. Look at what it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts 1, 8 says, But you will receive power when? When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here's where I'm going with this. The supernatural, of power, the, the supernatural power of God that we need is not necessarily what we expect. The supernatural power of God that we need is not always what we imagine, what we think it's going to be. And we need to be careful and make sure that we've got the real deal and not some faux power. If you have your Bible, Mark chapter 2, we're going to break break this up into two sections. But you can see here, uh, God longs to reveal, God longs to reveal His greatest power to us. His greatest power to us. Mark chapter 2. Look at the first seven verses and then we'll stop and we'll come back to it. A few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Wait a second. Jesus didn't have a home. No, but Peter did. 
What we know historically is that Jesus, when he came to Capernaum, stayed in Peter's home. And so this appears to be Peter's house. Uh, When I went on my trip to Israel a couple of years ago, we went to the place that they're pretty sure was Peter's home. And I stood in this place where Jesus would have stood. And if you go with us next March, you can stand in that same place. That was a that was free didn't cost you any extra okay but if you'd like to do that it's it's a phenomenal trip when he had come home the people heard that he'd come home verse 2 so many gathered there was no room left not even outside the door and he preached the word to them verse 3 some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. Wait a second, we've got to explain this just a little bit. If we had somebody show up today and open up the roof of the church and lower somebody down, we would say, first of all, what's wrong with them? You know, let's get the insurance company out here. You need to understand in those days, in in the building that they did, especially in Israel, much of it was like our adobe buildings that were made of mud. They would put a frame together. They would pack mud on either side for insulation. Because in Israel, in July and August, it gets about the same as it does here. It can be 105, 110 degrees. And the thick walls, the thick adobe walls, helped cool it down. But they would build a roof over it with big timbers that were stretched across from one wall to the other. And many times they would take clay and they would bake it into a tile. And they would put the tiles on top. And then they would seal between the tiles with mud. And then they would put straw over the whole thing. Well, that was good for about one rainy season, just like we have rainy seasons. About one rainy season and the straw gets all dissolved and gets nasty. They would go up and they would tear it off. And they would come back and they would put more mud and more straw. The guys get there and they realize that Jesus has so many people around them that, they, that there's no way they're going to get to him. And that one of them thinks, I know it's not time to replace the roof, but let's go up there and see what happens. So they, they go up the outside steps, and a lot of people had the outside steps because they could go up to the, the top in the evenings because it was cool and sometimes even sleep on the roof of the, of the house. They go up the outside steps, they pull off one of the tiles, but can you imagine the people underneath? You think it's bad to be in the attic? Think about all the straw and the dirt. And Jesus is speaking, preaching the word to them. And all of a sudden, straw is getting in his hair. And, and, he's, you know, and the people are going, what is going on? And then the sunlight appears. And the, and the opening keeps getting bigger and bigger because it's got to be big enough so that they can let a cot or a mat with, with robes tied on four ends. It says there are four of them. And they let this person down in front of Jesus. And at that point, I'm pretty sure the teaching's done. And everything has come to a screeching stop. Look at what it says. Lower, uh, uh, verse 4, since they could not get to Jesus, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. He couldn't move. It appears he was quadriplegic from the neck down. Look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith. Who's the there? Was it the paralytic? Was it the guy who was paralyzed? No, it was the four men that brought him, his four friends brought him there, and they thought if we could just get this guy in front of Jesus. Jesus saw their faith. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, not to them, but to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Wait a second. Is that what they wanted? 
When they came to Jesus, weren't they looking for some supernatural power? Weren't they looking for something out of the ordinary? Weren't they looking for their friend who was paralyzed from the neck down? They had seen how Jesus had healed the blind man and and how he had healed others. They had seen that people who had, had not been able to walk could get up and walk. What they expected was for Jesus to say, hey, I'm going to heal you and pray or do something, and the man would get up off the mat. At this point, the guys who are holding the ropes are thinking, man, I hope I have enough strength to pull him back up. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now look at verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? They were thinking in their mind. By the way, it's very dangerous to think when you're, when you're standing around Jesus. Andy Stanley makes this point, and I love this. Andy Stanley says to them, wait a second. What were they thinking? They're in the presence of God himself, and they're thinking, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I want you to look at what God's trying to reveal here about his supernatural power. Number one, God God concentrates on what is meaningful. God concentrates, first of all, on what is meaningful. This man came with his friends. The friends brought him, and they thought the most important thing for that man was for him to be able to walk. And Jesus said the most important thing for him is for his sins to be forgiven. It's what's meaningful to him. Jesus has more power than we can possibly imagine, and he desires a greater miracle, the miracle of grace, the miracle of forgiveness. Andy Stanley, again, says, what we perceive as our pressing need is not necessarily our primary need. Do you get that? What is your pressing need? You know, people come to Jesus all the time for a quick fix. People come to Jesus and, and they say, Lord, my, my marriage is broken. People come to the church and they say, our, our children are, are out of control. People come to the church and say, my finances are in a wreck. People come to the church and do all of these things and they come to the Lord and they say, Lord, fix this. The Lord says, let me fix what you really need. What you really need is not your finances, not your marriage, not your family. Those are all pressing needs, but the most important need that you have is grace for for forgiveness. And when Jesus forgave the man's sins, it wasn't just a, a cheap act. When Jesus said that, it wasn't just something quick and, and, and unimportant. When Jesus forgave this man's sins, he knew what it would cost. You see, those Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, they thought they knew what it costs to have your sins forgiven. In the Old Testament, do you remember what it costs to have your sins forgiven? Do you remember that? They were supposed to show up once a year with a lamb. And if you could not afford a lamb, and by the way, not just any lamb, and it had to be a perfect lamb, a lamb with no obvious flaws, nothing on the outside that you could, if it had ever gotten up against barbed wire, you couldn't bring it. It couldn't have a cut or, or any kind of a bruise on it. It had to be a perfect lamb. And you brought that perfect lamb once a year. And if you couldn't afford that, you could bring a pigeon. But nobody showed up with a pigeon because then everybody would know that you're over, you're, you're maxed out on your credit cards. You couldn't do that. They knew that you couldn't afford the real deal, and so you brought the the pigeon. And so if there was any way possible, you brought a lamb, and that was a very expensive thing to do. Once a year they brought it, and then they would take it to the priest, and the priest would ceremonially clean his hands, and the people would have to ceremonially clean their, their hands, and they would hand the lamb over, and they would stand there. And the priest did a horrible thing in our way of thinking. They would take the lamb in front of the person, and they would slit the lamb's throat. 
And the blood would gush out, and many times it was gross and dirty and nasty, and it would get over the... The people would just wash their hands, and blood would be running down their hands and the hands of the priests that they brought it to. And, and, and these, these rulers of the law knew that that, that was going to happen. It was complicated, and it was expensive, and it, and it cost so much. And they knew what it cost. And by the way, you did that, and it was temporary, because the next year you had to come do it again. Every year. There had to be the atonement. Every year there had to be the cost. And Jesus says, I forgive your sins. And and these guys, these legal experts thought, you don't have a clue what it takes to forgive sins. And Jesus said, the lamb will still die. Because it wasn't that much longer that Jesus stretched out his arms. And they didn't slit his throat They punctured his heart with a spear, and the blood flowed, and it was dirty and costly and expensive and horrible when Jesus died on the cross in your place and my place. Jesus said, do you understand? I've just forgiven him, and I know what it cost." You know, what's funny about these these rulers, some people are so skeptical, it doesn't matter what evidence is there. You know, they they just don't get it. And did you see what they said? Who does he think he is? Who do you think you are saying you forgive sins? And Jesus could have stopped right there and he said, I'm the son of God. I, I am the lamb who it was talked about in Isaiah 53. I am the one who's come to die for the sins of the world. And later in Mark, he would say that. Mark 14, 11, look at what it says. He says it in different words. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Who do you think you are? Some people are just so skeptical. What evidence do we have? What evidence do we, do we deny? What evidence do we ignore? Sometimes we're just as bad, we're just as skeptical. You remember the story, I I love the story, it's in Luke chapter uh, 16. There's a story of the rich guy and Lazarus. The rich man has everything you can imagine. He eats at this big, huge table. He has all of this food. He's going to hometown buffet, but it's not just hometown buffet. It's Cattleman's and hometown buffet and, and every other place that you like to go. It's Red Lobster piled on. It's all there, and he's eating, and there's even crumbs that fall off the table. And the poor man comes, and he just says, you know, can I have what you don't want? Can I have the leftovers? Can I have the crumbs from your table? And the rich man has no relationship with God. He doesn't love the Lord, certainly doesn't love this poor guy. And he says, no. And the poor man loves the Lord. And he has a relationship with the Lord. And he's allowed the Lord to forgive his sins. And so when they both die, and and, in the story that Jesus tells, they both die. And the rich man and Lazarus, they go up and the, the rich man doesn't go up, he goes down, and he's in a place of torment, and he, and he calls out across this, this wide gulf, and he says, if I could just have a drop of water, I'm so thirsty, and, I, and I'm in torment, please just a drop, and, and Abraham is there, and Abraham says, listen, that's not the way it works, you're there, you made that choice, you denied the evidence, you remember what the rich man says? If you can't help me, would you go back and help my brothers? Would you go tell my family, I don't want anyone else to ever be here? That's that's kind of an amazing thing. What he says is, 
Can you just tell them? And what does, what's the response? In Luke, 9, uh, Luke 16, 31, it says, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Imagine that. What evidence do we have? We have the risen Savior. We have the Jesus, the same Jesus who on that day says, I forgive you of your sins, who died in our place on the cross, and he predicted three days later he, was be, he would be raised from the dead. That same Jesus is the one. We have that evidence of a risen Savior. We have the evidence of the conviction of the Holy Spirit who comes inside our heart and he says, don't you understand? There is some truth and you need that truth in your life. We have the completed canon of the Scripture, all of the Bible that God's given us. And we don't believe the evidence. God, truly, God concentrates on what's meaningful. Number two, God is in control of the miraculous. God is in control of the miraculous. I want to go back to the story. I want to finish up the story. Verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, I told you, it's dangerous to think things in the presence of God. And by the way, you're in the presence of God just as much as they were. So every thought that's ever come into your mind, God already knows it. And he will hold you accountable for every thought that comes into your mind. Look at what it says. He knew what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk but that you may know that the son of man and that's a title of the messiah from the old testament the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins he said to the paralytic and i think this is the way this this conversation went here's these here's these religious guys here's these rulers here are these guys who are supposed to know the law and he says to them so you will know and then he turns to the paralytic i tell you get up take your mat and go home just that simple. No big long prayer, no, no holy water, no, no, uh, no big uh, fall to roll. I mean, this is, he just says, I tell you, take your mat and go home. Look at verse 12. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. One of the saddest sentences in all of the Bible is this next sentence to me. This amazed everyone, and they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. They didn't get it. And the truth is, some of you are sitting here today and you don't get it anymore. Because when Jesus healed the guy, they all said, oh, well, yeah, all right. But until he did that, they thought that Jesus had no control over anything. Jesus appears clueless. He appears insensitive. He appears to not care about this man's plight. And that's not the truth. But Jesus God is in control, and Jesus is in control. He knew why the men came. He knew what they wanted, but he knew what was more important, and he was in control in his time, in his way, he was going to do his thing. Now, I, I want you to go back to the story for just a minute, because until the second half, and that's why I broke up the story, because we know it so well, when the first half starts, and Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, what do you think the man lying on the mat thought? What do you think he thought? All right! Oh, except he couldn't move his arm, okay? He couldn't make any motion. Do you think he, he looked up at the guy and says, Hey, guys, everything we wanted to have happen, happened. Do you think that's what he said? No. No. They came for him to walk out. 
They came with a one-way strategy to bring him to Jesus that Jesus would heal him. And I'm telling you, telling you that God is in control of the miraculous. People come today for the miraculous. They want to see the big show. They want to see God heal. And if God heals, then, then they may believe in him. If God puts on a good show, they may believe in him. And the Lord says, they were so amazed, we've never seen anything like this. And the Lord said, that's not what this is all about. Power is popular today. I, you know what? I, I ride my bike. I, I eat Power Bars. That's the name of them, Power Bars. There's Power Aid. We, we've already talked about that. That's the drink, okay? Uh, there is, and I was looking this up, there are Power Suits. If you have a certain suit, uh, that's the Power Suit. The new Power Tie is pale blue. President wears one, it must be a Power Tie. There are Power Meetings. We're going to have a power meeting. This is where power is going to be. There's power evangelism. I got on a website and it said, power evangelism. Come and see thousands brought to the Lord overnight. There's, there's power messages. There's power, uh, there's power everything. Power healing. The one that's sad to me is they show up with a, a little kid's wading pool and they blow it up and they fill it with water and they come and they dump people in their wheelchairs into this little pool and they call it the pool of Bethesda. It's a power healing. Uh, please understand me. It's not that I believe that God is powerless today. God promises power. I believe that God still can and does miracles today. I believe it with all of my heart. But the Bible never promises supernatural phenomena on a daily basis. Did you get that? The Bible never, ever promises that there will be miracles every day. If you did a miracle every day, you know what you would call that? The regular, the usual. You know, it, it would be business as usual. It's only a miracle because it only happens rarely. I was reading to, get, to prepare for this, and I ran across this article, and, and this person said, and it's somebody who has a huge ministry, literally tens of thousands of people flock wherever this guy comes and he speaks, and, and this is what he said, if you just had the faith of Gideon, then 300 people in your neighborhood could transform your city too. I could not believe, how many of you know the story of Gideon? The faith of Gideon. If you had the faith of Gideon, Gideon was a man of deep faith, right? The angel comes to him and he says, Hail, mighty warrior. When he says, Hail, mighty warrior, where is he? He's hiding out from the Midianites. He's been hiding for seven years. Hail, mighty warrior. And Gideon gets this message. God's going to use you to overthrow the Midianites. And he says, You must mistake me for someone else. You want to check my ID? This is not me. You know, Lord, you must have somebody else in mind. And, and the Lord says, no, it's, it's you. And he says, bring me some food. He brings the food and puts it on the rock. And what happens? It explodes. It literally, it disintegrates. The fire from heaven falls and it's gone. They can't find a trace of it. And God says, see, I'm God and you're Gideon and we're going to do this. And so Gideon says, I, I, I'm not meaning to tick you off, God, but let me ask you a question. I've got this little wool here, this fleece. I'm going to put it out, and tonight can it be dry, and the, around it can be wet. And, and then the next night, he says, you know, that was, a, that was nice, but this time can the fleece be wet and the area around it be dry? How much faith did Gideon have? 
I mean, he's gone three days now saying, God, and finally the Lord brings 32,000 people and he says to Gideon, just so you know that this is not about you, let's, let's just narrow it down a little bit. And the first time they narrow it down, it goes to about 10,000. And the Lord says, still too many. And he sends them down to the creek, or here would be a crick. And he says, get down by the creek and take a drink. And they take a drink. He says, these 300 did it the right way. We're going to use these 300, and they're going to overcome the, the hundreds of thousands of Midianites. And Gideon says, you know, I'm having a problem with this again. And the Lord says to him, listen, I've given you three different times. I've shown you my power. Three miracles, and that's not enough. I want you to go down. There's a man who's had a dream. Listen to the dream. And he goes and hears the dream. And he finally reluctantly says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take a trumpet in one hand. And we're going to take a pitcher in the other hand. Look at what it says in Judges chapter 7 verse 16. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets in one hand and empty jars in the hands of most of them, some of them, all of them. All 300. He's down to 300 in his army. And what are they doing? They have both hands tied up. How much, how much fighting can you do with a trumpet in one hand and basically a lantern in the other hand? How much fighting can you do? Zero. And the Lord won the battle with 300 men who never had to pick up a sword. The Lord won the battle. He caused the Midianites to fight each other. And you say, well, see, that's a miracle. That's what God could do for us. It had been seven years. In the book of Judges, there's 13 different judges that span 400 years. That means there's a miracle every 30 years or so. If you look at all the Bible, the, the same thing happens. It doesn't happen every day. God is in control of the miraculous. Here's the third one. God's ways often seem mysterious. Because he's God, he does things we cannot explain. I love A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer says it this way. Left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him or at least know where he is when we need him. We want a God we can in some measure control. We need the feeling of security that comes from knowing what God is like and what he is like, of course, is a composite of all the religious pictures we've seen, all the best people we've known or heard, and all the sublime ideas we've entertained. Is that who your God is? Is your God mysterious? Does God do things that you don't expect in ways that you can't imagine? We don't get that. We, we've, we've become so enamored with what we consider awesome. Do you hear people with their terminology, awesome? Oh, that player is awesome. That movie was awesome. That book was awesome. That pastor is... Okay, I, I was, you know... I was going to go for it and just see. But we use that term for everything. It says when we stand before the Lord God, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every time God shows up, people fall on their face. And folks, the word awesome is going to take on a new meaning. Because it's going to strike a fear and an awe and a reverence in us that we've never experienced before. When we're singing some of these songs, the reason that we sing them is to instill within us a sense of who God is. And folks, He alone is awesome. And we don't get that. 
We assume the supernatural phenomena is the best way to achieve God's purpose. But God's mysterious. And, and even in the early church when they had miracles, what happened? When they wrote to the, the, the letter to the Corinthians, what happened? When there were miracles going on, when they had the gift of tongues, when they had the other gifts, what happened? The people messed it up. When we had all this supernatural phenomena going on, Paul has to write them, and he asks seven questions, and each one of them obviously assumes the answer no. And one of the seven questions is, do all work miracles? And the answer is no. And then he comes to 1 Corinthians 12, 31 through 13, 1. Look at what it says. But eagerly desire, he's just talked about the supernatural gifts, the gifts of prophecy and, and of and interpretation and tongues. But eagerly desire the greater gifts. And now I will show you the most excellent way. What? If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm like a resounding gong. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. The Lord says, don't you get it? It's not about the supernatural. It's about the love of God that comes into your heart and your life. But we're so awed by the mysterious. It may be mysterious, but it makes sense. You know, when, you're, when you first have a baby, how much energy does it take to raise a child? And Kathy and I have said this. This is why we had our kids when we were young. Okay? Uh, God, in the early part of the church, did some supernatural things. things. I, I brought something that I don't normally bring. I brought a deck of playing cards <gasps> in the church. I want uh, Gary and Tom to come up. In my office this morning, uh, Gary and Tom and I were talking, and I have playing cards. I'm not good. I'm not a magician. But, Tom, I gave you a little card. Didn't I give you a little card this morning? And there were some, card, some cards written down, and actually three people picked the cards. I didn't pick the cards, Right? Okay, don't tell us what the cards were. I'm going to take this deck of cards. I'm going to shuffle. I'm going to shuffle again. Very badly shuffling, but I'm shuffling. I won't go to Vegas, okay? Okay. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Gary, since you've got the card, Gary, put the... Anywhere you want to. Put your finger anywhere you want to. Okay, put it right there. And Gary, come over here so they don't think I'm cheating. Just count the cards down from the top. Just count them down. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 13, 14, 15. Ooh. Wow. 15. Okay. Ooh. I didn't think it was going to be that. Count them one more time for me. Can you do that? Just the same way. Just the same way. 1, 2, 3, 4. Hmm. This may not work out the way I thought. 15 again. One more time. I'm, I, I'm sorry. I, you know, bear with me. One more time. I'm getting really nervous here. Let me take a drink. Okay. Okay, so take the ace of spades off the top. What card is that? Ace of spades. Let's hear for sure. What was it? It's the ace of spades. Okay, Pastor. then take the two of spades. Two of spades. And now take the six of hearts, why don't you? It's a six of hearts. What were the three cards that were written down on the uh, card? Ace of spades, two of spades, six of hearts. Are you impressed? Don't be. I've never done this before. That's the only card trick I know how to do. Let me tell you how it's done. 
I take, they pick the three cards. I went to Sunday school. I picked the three cards. I put them on the bottom of the deck. Every time I shuffled, I made sure that those three cards were never shuffled in the cards. When he counted them down each time, I had him do it three times because the first time they came to the top, the second time they went to the bottom, the third time they came back to the top again, and that's how I knew what the three cards were. Simple trick, right? See, now I can never amaze you with a card trick again. I've got news for you. So much of what we think is mysterious is not mysterious. It's a trick. And that's one of the reasons I believe that God doesn't use miracles. Because people would say today, it's just a trick. But there's one thing that that will never be a trick. And that's what we're going to see in this second part. God longs to release his greatest power through us. God longs to release his greatest power through us. What is it? Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We'll finish up with this. Acts chapter 1. You can tell people now you went to church and you saw the pastor shuffling a deck of cards, okay? And there will be phones ringing all over Reading. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. On one occasion, he, that's uh, Jesus, while he was eating with them. On one occasion, while he, that's Jesus, was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Did you get that? Jesus says, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they say, we want to talk politics. Are the Republicans going to win the next election, Lord? Are we going to get back in power again? Can we overthrow the Romans? Can we be back in power? And God says, it's not about that. Look at verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates for the Democrats or the Republicans. Oh no, that's the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority. Did you get that? Jesus says, you're going to have the most amazing experience. The Holy Spirit's going to come over you in power. And they want to talk politics. Look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll do miracle after miracle. You'll raise people from the dead. You'll heal. Is that what it says? No. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He gives them the basic instructions that we are to live by today to see the supernatural power of God. God longs to release His greatest power through us. Number one, am I a witness of God's peace and joy to others? Ask yourself that question. Has God done a transformation in your life? If you did a miracle, people might say it's a trick. But if your life has been transformed, If you go from someone who is bound up by fear to a person who is bound by peace, if you go from an unloving person to a loving person, if they see a transformation in you, they will come and say, I want what you have. Am I a witness? One of the greatest impacts we can have on those around us is to demonstrate the work of the Holy Spirit that makes us different. It transforms us. Look at what Romans 14 says. Romans 14. 
For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. The people in the, in the Roman church had gotten all bound up. Should we eat this food? Should we do this? Should we do that? He says it's not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Folks, if in your neighborhood, your house is the house of peace and joy, if your house is the house where someone's been transformed, if your house is the house of love and care, people in your neighborhood will know it. Am I a witness? Does that describe me? Does that describe you? Chuck Swindoll says, one of the greatest failures of believers today is that we're not bothered that the Holy Spirit living in us has not made much of a difference in our lives. One of the greatest failures of believers today is that we're not bothered that the Holy Spirit living in us has not made much of a difference in our lives. God promised us the peace that transcends all understanding in Philippians 4, 7. And he says, if you, if you come by faith, if you trust me, if you become part of the family, then the God of peace will be with you. The truth is, we don't think that's God's greatest miracle. We don't think that's God's greatest supernatural power. But it's what God tells us is His greatest work. Because Jesus, as we looked before in John, remember when we looked at that? And Jesus says, you think these miracles are great. You're going to do something far greater than this. And what happened? The early church, there were 3,000 added to the church in one day. And over a period of just, just about 10 years... The church exploded across the face of the world. Am I a witness of God's peace and joy to others? Number two, am I a purveyor of God's hope to others? Am I a purveyor of God's hope to others? I tease those who love politics. If you love politics and you love to send emails about politics, uh, my email is Pastor Gary. No, it's not really. Okay. I had somebody come to me and they said, Pastor, I have such hope because of some of the primaries that have happened recently and it looks like my guys are going to win again. I got news for you. I've got hope because God is in control. I've got hope because the God of the ages, the God of the universe, the God of the beginning and the end knows what's going to happen. I have hope because I trust in Him and not a political party. That's where my hope is. There's a song that says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I only lean on Jesus' name. On Christ. The solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. A purveyor is someone who provides something that is not theirs. A lot of times use of a store owner. It's a purveyor. It's, it, you, you supply something with someone that's not really yours. And I, I use this word advisedly. Am I a purveyor of God's hope? Because you might say, I don't have any hope, but God's got hope for you, and God's got hope that you can share with others. Do you have God's hope in your life? Look at Romans 15, 13. I love this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him. 
Get that again. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. That's what we looked at before. As you do what? As you hope, as you trust in Him. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You want hope? Come to the Lord and trust in Him. You want hope? Stop putting your hope in politics. Stop putting your hope in business. Stop putting your hope in your retirement account. Stop putting your hope in your children. Stop putting your hope in anything except Jesus Christ. That's the only hope only hope next week we're going to start a a series called crazy love francis chan wrote the book crazy love and i've been enamored with what francis chan has said he's he's an amazing man francis chan uh in this and by the way we're not going to have the books for sale but you should get it uh francis chan when he wrote crazy love decided he and his wife decided they would not take a penny of the royalties the book just hit the one million mark, which is unheard of in any publishing circles, especially today. One million copies have been sold. They didn't take any of the royalties. They've used all of the royalties to help people in third world nations, and especially for women in Africa and other places that have been raped, for young girls that are sold into slavery. They have used one million dollars plus of the money that they could have taken, and they've used it for other things. Francis Chan says... If you've not known and experienced God in ways you cannot deny, I would suggest you are not living in a needy and dependent way. Did you get that? Have you known and experienced God in ways you cannot deny? Are we living in a needy and dependent way? God delights to show up when His children call on His name and when they're trusting fully in Him to come through in relationships, battling sin. Strength for survival, endurance for everyday life. They're trusting Him to show up to do those things, to come through in relationships, to battle sin, to, to have strength for survival, and to endure for everyday life. Well, you say that's good for Francis Chan. Been at the same church for 16 years. After Francis Chan wrote Crazy Love, and after he wrote a, another book, The Forgotten God, Francis Chan began to, to have all of these requests to come and speak at different churches and different events, then he turned most of them down. He says, I'm a pastor. But he flew a few times, and he flew into Los Angeles. He flew into, flew into Chicago and to, to New York and to Dallas. And, and as he flew in, he would fly over these neighborhoods, and he realized there were millions of people there who had never heard the gospel. On April 27th, he came to his church, and he said, I've been here for 16 years. He was the founding pastor of this church in Simi Valley. And he came to his church on April 27th, and this is what he said, I can't do this anymore. He said, I feel like I've been called to do something else. And he resigned on April 27th from his church. And this is what he said. I want to go to the inner city of Chicago or L.A. or one of the major cities, and I want to start another church. And I want to start a church to preach and teach the gospel because the Lord has called me to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And they said, what are you going to do for salary? And he says, the Lord will have to provide I I resign, and he said, I will preach through the end of May. And he did that, and he had some speaking engagements that he had already agreed to in June and July, and he kept the speaking engagements. Then he prayed for the church that God would find the right pastor for the church in Simi Valley. And then in August and September, uh, for these two months, what he's doing is he's going to another major city, and he and his wife are walking through the worst parts, and they're looking for the worst parts of the worst cities, and they're going to pray that God would open a door for them in one of those cities. To be a witness for Jesus Christ. To give them hope. That's an incredible story. 
gets better. He said, October, November, and December, what we're going to do, instead of setting up and getting ready and, and moving and all, we want to go to a third world country, and they're going to a Muslim-based country. They didn't want to give out the name because they were afraid for the, their safety. They're going to that Muslim country, and they're going to, to, to just serve food. They're going, to, they're going to try to help the poor in a third world nation. October, November, December. And in January 1st, he said, we're going to go wherever the Lord has opened the door. Is that amazing? Is that an astounding story of someone who walks by faith? You know what? If we had somebody brought in here today that was a paralytic and they got up and walked out, you would all be astounded. You would be going, Woo! The only time I got applause today is when I did a card trick. You know, when I applauded God, when the seven people who went to the lake last week were baptized, and we had six of them that have the rest of their life. They were children or teenagers. Six of them have the rest of their life. One of them is a 20-year-old. They have all of that time to spend for Jesus Christ. That's when I applaud God. And that's when a supernatural power is the greatest. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? How about you? Have you ever experienced that supernatural power? Have you ever come to Jesus Christ? Because he gives you the same offer. He says, you can have your sins forgiven. And it won't cost you a lamb, and it won't cost you a pigeon. It'll just cost you faith. And he'll even give you the faith to believe if you'll come to him. Father, you know every heart of every person that's here today. And Father, you know that this message is one that you've laid on my heart for some time. Father, we love the glitz, we love the glamour, we love the big show, we love the the sparkle. And meanwhile, what you want is lives transformed. Because the paralytic died again, and when he died, he was ushered into your kingdom because your son paid the price for everything wrong he'd ever done. And so today, Father, I pray for each person here There may be someone who came thinking that what they need is healing or a better marriage or something else to take place. And what they really need is the same thing that the paralytic need. They need you, Father. They need your Son, Jesus Christ. They need the Holy Spirit to indwell them, to transform them forever. Oh, Father, we need you. Father, transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.